Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, a look at Texas and what that state's politics say about the upcoming election. All right, let's start the show. In honor of this Texas week on the show, I'm going to ask both of you to recite right now the Pledge of Allegiance to the Texas flag. I had to say that every day, <laughs> and I don't know it. And I grew up in Florida, to be clear, uh, okay. so I didn't, <laughs> I never had to learn it. Well, for our listeners who may not know, this is the Texas Pledge. It's quite simple. Honor the Texas flag. I pledge allegiance to thee, Texas. One state under God, one and indivisible. I feel like that's not even, like, well-written. I don't know who wrote those sentences. Anyway. We love the Texas Pledge. We love the Texas flag. It's all great. <laughs> From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. As you heard, we are giving you a special Lone Star edition of the show this weekend. And like me, this week, my two panelists are also in Texas. So for the first part of this show, we're going to talk Texas politics and what it says about our politics everywhere else in the country. Right now, Texas is experiencing really high early voting turnout. And at the same time, there are some big fights brewing in Texas over voting access. The first big voting access fight in Texas is in Harris County. That is where Houston is. The county got into a fight with the governor over whether or not it could send out early voting applications. And then the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, he instituted a rule about ballot drop-off sites that was so divisive, it made it all the way up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. My two panelists today will explain all of this. Jessica Huseman in Dallas, Texas. She's a ProPublica reporter covering voting rights and election administration. And Ashley Lopez. She covers politics and health care for KUT in Austin. I began by having them both explain what exactly Texas Governor Greg Abbott is doing. He's basically said that you can only have one official ballot box in each county across Texas. I've never heard of this before. Why did they do that? Where did this come from? Ashley. Well, you never heard of this before because what people in California would know as like these drop off boxes, those things are actually illegal in Texas. Like we don't just have like receptacles for mail in ballots here in the state, largely because like a lot of people until now did not vote by mail because it's a Mm. pretty limited program. Only people who are over 65, out of town, disabled or um, in jail but not convicted have you know, historically had access to this program. So because of the whole like brouhaha with USPS, local officials in mostly like the major cities were like, okay, we have to come up with a solve for this. And so they Mm -hmm. just created like additions to their existing offices that they referred to like hand delivery sites. So people wouldn't have to rely on the mail. So they aren't all boxes. Right. So these are not drop boxes like other states think of drop boxes. These are very specific to Texas. They're very well regulated. And historically, if counties have had drop boxes, they have only ever had one. Um, so I think that Greg Abbott's legal position is that he's just restoring things to the way that they were before. And he alleges that counties misinterpreted his emergency order, which gave them more authority to sort of be flexible for this election um, and interpreted that to mean that they could have more than one drop box. I think 
It's really important, though, to realize that a lot of that messaging came directly from his administration. So the Texas Secretary of State's office had released several legal opinions about drop boxes that were consistent with counties being able to have more than one. And then all of a sudden, without consulting the Secretary of State's office, Greg Abbott put out a second decree that reduced all of the drop boxes to one. Um, So it's been quite a show. But, you know, so all of the spin around this... Uh, has been really hyped up. And the headline basically is, all right, places like Harris County, the city of Houston, will only have one Dropbox for the whole county. This must just be the governor of Texas wanting to depress turnout. Uh, Is that a valid take on this story, which is much more complex than uh, the headline suggests? I don't want to attribute motive here because like, you know, like that, I'll leave that up to courts. But I mean, the way this all played out, it's kind of hard not to see this a little bit as a reaction to political realities. Like the sort of epicenter of all of these voting fights are the biggest and most rapidly changing politically city in Texas. So and, and it's like, you know, so many other things are changing because of the pandemic. Like, bars are still closed in Austin. Like, let's be clear, like things are different than they were a year ago or four years ago, obviously. So it is, it's hard to make the argument like this isn't about politics a little bit. But it is also true that, you know, like voting by mail in the law is not designed to be really easy or widespread. In Texas. Um, Yeah. Yeah, here in Texas. Yeah. And the legislature hasn't really changed that irrespective of a pandemic. I agree with that. And I think that um, the governor also found himself in a really odd political position because his emergency order when he issued it was actually a pretty big expansion in voting in the state of Texas. I mean, that sounds crazy, but like we're talking relatively here. So, you know, he expanded early voting. He elongated the period in which voters could submit their absentee ballot. Hmm. And I think that Republicans in the state were not happy with any of that. There were Republicans who took the decision to expand early voting by a week to court to challenge its legality. Um, And so I think that for Abbott, this may have been just like an easy political thing to do to get himself back in In the good graces graces of Texas Republicans. Well, it's so interesting to hear this, though, because it's like... you're laying it out like Abbott, who was this Republican governor, he's been on both sides of this issue. And it mm-hmm. just points to how complex voting is all across the country right now. So on the one hand, you have governors like Abbott expanding early voting and the days in which you can vote early because of the pandemic. But also he and other Republicans like him in leadership across the country are doing other things that seem to limit access. Is this kind of both sides thing happening just in Texas or maybe all over? Uh, Before I answer that, Sam, can I just point out one thing, which is there is polling that suggests that when you poll based on partisanship, your preference for voting by mail versus early voting, there is a strong Democratic preference for voting by mail and a very strong Republican preference for voting in person early. You know, voting fights have been kind of an ongoing thing every two years and every sort of big election, you know, for at least the past decade. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that the the story about how Republicans have viewed voting historically 
is so interesting. So, you know, Republicans in the scope of history have actually this odd background of expanding access, hmm. um, but not recently, right? So like Republicans were the ones that got early voting through in Texas. Wow. Um, they were big proponents of voting centers. But all of this was happening at a time where the Texas electorate was one color mm -hmm. and largely mm -hmm. one party. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't really have to worry that much about increased turnout leading to things that they couldn't control, but they now do. So we're watching them take modern positions that are not only suppressive in nature, but are very contradictory to, what they've to been doing. their history yeah. in the state. The Republicans in Texas are trying very hard to hold on to power without actually changing any of their positions or accommodating new voices. Instead, they're just trying to exclude the voices that disagree with yeah. them. And they have as few guardrails as ever in that project. And I want to talk about the loss of those guardrails. You know, we talked about this big battle right now over drop-off boxes for votes in Texas, but there also was another Harris County, Houston, Texas battle earlier this year over whether or not Harris County could have sent mail-in ballot applications to registered voters. Um, and so all of these battles, it feels like they're being waged right now and they might not have been waged so publicly or in the same way before one particular Supreme Court case. I'm talking about Shelby County versus Holder. And that case, and y'all correct me because y'all are the experts, it basically um, took away the requirement yeah. that uh, states and counties get pre-clearance through the Voting Rights Act before they do anything with voting that could disenfranchise people. Yeah, all of it. If you're going to move a polling location, if you're going to pass a voter ID bill, if you're going to re-precinct, that has to be cleared through the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. And so when the Shelby County decision came down in 2013, hmm. what it essentially did was thread this strange needle between wanting preclearance and then eliminating it. So it did not eliminate uh, the idea of preclearance. So preclearance is still part of the Voting Rights hmm. Act that has not been overturned. What was overturned was the formula by which states and counties were added to preclearance. So I think the Shelby County decision sort of had a really sweeping effect on the state of Texas. So the very day that Shelby County passed, like Shelby County was announced, Abbott sort of unilaterally mm -hmm. signed the voter ID bill into law. Wow. Yeah, it had been passed two years earlier, but had been held up because the DOJ wouldn't approve it. And as soon as they did not need that approval, Abbott instituted it. It was immediately effective. Really? Yeah. So there's another ramification of that decision that is playing out in, in Texas in a really interesting way, which is an argument that the justices made in Shelby versus Holder is that like, look, okay, if you, if there is a problem, you have the courts at your disposal to like remedy the situation, right? So like, if you feel mm -hmm. like there is mm -hmm. a voting law rule or change that disenfranchises racial minorities, go to the courts and have them remedy it. And what has happened in that same time is that, I mean, we're, paying a lot of attention now to the Supreme Court be for obvious reasons. But, you know, the federal courts in general have gotten more conservative and yeah. in general have become more reluctant to side with voting rights advocates on issues like this. So in Texas, it seems like 
time and time again, when an issue comes up related to voter access, the appellate court, the Fifth Circuit here, sides with state officials who uh, have, you know, stood in the way of any sort of change. And that's been a part of Mitch McConnell's plan. He said for years that his goal as chief of the Senate was to get as many conservative judges uh, on all the courts as much as possible. And it's worked and it's paid off for them. Last question for you both. You both uh, are in Texas covering politics through a Texas lens. And we've talked about battles over voting access here in the Lone Star State. But when you look at those storylines in Texas and the state of voting and politics in Texas right now, is there a lesson from Texas for the rest of the country? Oh, my God. Ooh, that's a good question. I really Mm. like it. Um, Okay, so here's what I will say. You should probably not pass laws that make it so Mm. that the majority party has a lot of power when the likelihood is that you will not always be part of the majority. You know, I mean, this is this is sort of the story of time. Like eventually the people that you are stepping on will step on you. And and the more you change the norms (laughs) around that, like the easier it's going to be for them to do that. So, yeah. Ashley, what about you? Uh, Well, it's like besides California, it is you know, one of the most diverse states in the country. And the Mm. reason why politics are changing here is because people of color are voting in higher numbers than they have in the past. And that's really interesting to see. I think it's really telling that, you know, Democrats have, have, have at least tried to do a better job of reaching out to like, you know, racial minorities in elections. And it's started to really pay off. I think that's besides like the suburbs changing. Um, Like that's another big shift that's happening in Texas politics. And, you know, in an ideal world, both sides would see this voting population as worthy of time and money. And, you know, so I think that's for me, like a big takeaway that I'm seeing, like part of the reason politics are changing here is because we're just giving a little more respect in a political sense to a, a big swath of voters here. Yeah. Well, this was quite informative and quite Texan. Thank you both. Coming up, my two panelists play my favorite game with me. It's called Who Said That? Support for NPR and the following message come from Madewell. Their experts use premium fabric and the latest denim technology to make jeans in fits and styles for everyone. Whether you're looking for a super comfy pair that really moves with you or want to keep it old school in 100% cotton, you're sure to find jeans you're going to reach for again and again. Go to madewell.com and use the code NPRDENIM for $20 off your online jeans purchase. Terms apply. Please see madewell.com promos for full offer details. This message comes from NPR sponsor WeTransfer. Are you perfectly happy with the way things are right now? Are there any doubts you have about the world as is? If so, perhaps they deserve your full attention. Perhaps they could even change things for the better. WeTransfer's set of tools is made for just such an endeavor. By helping you collect, sketch, present, and share the ideas that all started with doubts. Meet, paste, paper, and collect by WeTransfer. Go to toolstomoveideas.com to learn more. Misrepresentative Democracy. A new series about voting in America from NPR's Throughline. Episodes drop 
October 15th. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm your host, Sam Sanders, joined this weekend by two lovely panelists, both in Texas this weekend. Ashley Lopez, reporter at NPR member station KUT in Austin, covering politics and health care. And Jessica Huseman, reporter at ProPublica, covering voting rights and election administration. Jessica, you're in Dallas, correct? I am. Ashley, you're in Austin. Yep. Uh, I am in San Antonio. Of these three cities, which is the best? Oh man, are you gonna make me? You pay? know what you need to say. You know what you need you to say. You know what? I I'm gonna I'm gonna say San Antonio. I Thank know this you. is controversial, <laughs> but I love San Antonio. I love oh, it. I yeah. go there oh, anytime. Yeah. I have the most minor excuse. It's wonderful. There you go, Ashley. Go ahead. Oh, Choose wisely. I'm pleading the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we're about to play a game in which no matter what, a Texan will ultimately win. <laughs> uh, this game is called Who Said That? Who said that? Who said that? Who said that? All right. Let's get to the game. I'll share three quotes from this week of news. You got to tell me who said it or what story I'm talking about. Here's the first quote. I want my damn respect. Who said that? Oh, my God. An athlete who won big this week. Is it LeBron? Yes, ma'am, it is. Oh, my that goodness. That quote comes from LeBron nice. James. Uh, <laughs> oh. LeBron James, after the L.A. Lakers won the NBA Finals this week, he said, I want my damn respect. It was uh, LeBron James's fourth NBA championship on any team, his fourth Finals MVP award. Um, but, you know, as always with LeBron, there's always folks that just hate LeBron because he's LeBron. And he was mad about it. His full quote was this. For me to be a part of such a historical franchise, it's an unbelievable feeling, not only for myself, but for my teammates, for the organization, for the coaches, for the trainers, for everybody that's here. We just want our respect. Lakers Nation wants their respect, and I want my damn respect, too. I mean, I'm not going to judge LeBron, but I will say one of the least, one of the worst ways to get respect is to ask for it like that. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I mean, yes, that's true. And I know basically nothing about basketball other than that my boyfriend watches it very loudly in the living room sometimes. But okay. I do does he have, like LeBron? He, well, he does. He loves LeBron. I do think two things about LeBron. One, he recruited a lot of poll workers this year. Mm-hmm. So I give him props huh. for that. And then two, okay. he was legitimately quite funny in the movie Trainwreck. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ashley, what are your thoughts on, on uh, LeBron James? <laughs> I really don't have a thought. I will say besides poll workers, like... I was really like this is a voting episode and I was also very impressed with the NBA turning their stadiums into mega centers for voting like another crossover into voting that I thought was like very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So for that, LeBron, you do get some respect, at least for me and me. (laughs) Jessica, you got that point. Next quote is I definitely feel like I just met my husband. I'm shaking. Oh, yeah. The new bachelorette. Yeah, yeah. That was Claire Crawley, the new Bachelorette. (laughs) Uh, She uttered that quote after she met one of the male contestants, Dale Moss, a former NFL player. Uh, Listeners, Google that man. Once you see him, you're going to shake, too. Yeah. (laughs) He's pretty. He's pretty. Wait, I'm Uh, I'm Googling this man right now because I don't know what. It's, 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 you know, it's just talk about cheekbones. Talk about cheekbones. Oh, yeah. yeah. For days. Cheekbones for days. <laughs> I will say, though, I watched the premiere of this new season this week. And the most surprising thing was the first 20 minutes The Bachelorette spent explaining how they made their COVID bubble work. Hi, Blake. Hi. So your results came back. And you're clear to meet Claire. Woo! 
Actually, The Bachelorette was one of the first shows to start filming during the pandemic. And I think like wow. it, they were met with a little bit of heat when it happened. So I think it was a little bit of a PR move like, hey, guys, look at mm. how we're doing this. I mean, little did they know like the NBA would come up and show everyone like how it's supposed to be done. Exactly. <laughs> I will say our first two quotes come from The Bachelorette and the NBA, two institutions that successfully pulled off COVID bubbles. All right, last quote. And this game is tied now, so this is serious. Mm -hmm. Whoever gets this wins the game. Tell me what corporate brand said this. Quote, in these strange times, people are in need of extra comfort. That's why it's always a nice gesture to send nudes, N-O-O-D-S. To be clear, I'm not advocating you send nudes to anyone. Send nudes, N-O-O-D-S, not nudes, N-U-D-E-S. Who said that? Like nudes, like noodles? Is it a noodle company? Yeah. Is it like Postmates? Who makes the... Kraft? Yes, ma'am. That's it. It's Kraft. Oh, my goodness. You win. That was Vanessa Bear in a new social media campaign for Kraft Mac and Cheese. The campaign's message was basically send nudes. And they thought it'd be a fun thing to have everyone send, like, photos of noodles because they're comforting. And mac and cheese is comforting. And this will be cute. Turns out... The parents of the kids who eat Kraft Mac and Cheese didn't like it. A lot of them commented and said, this is inappropriate for a family-friendly brand. Some even accused Kraft of being predatory towards children <laughs> by asking for nudes, N-O-O-D-S. And I know I shouldn't be laughing, but I'm laughing. And this ad has since been removed from the Kraft Mac and Cheese Instagram page. Oh, I think that parents of young children need to come to terms with the fact that a plurality of people who eat Kraft macaroni and cheese are college students. Yeah. <laughs> and not every ad is meant for them. Oh, I'm always a fan of unnecessary pearl clutching. So that is really great. <laughs> All right, that's the game. Round of applause for Jessica. Well done. You won. Congratulations. I did so badly. But the everyone first time won. I this game, so this is very exciting. It's all good. Y'all were delightful and amazing. Also, thanks for coming on the show this week and sharing some knowledge about politics in Texas and the entire country. Um, next time we do this, just come on down to San Antonio. We can tape in person. Well, not in yes. person, six feet apart. I always need to go to San Antonio, Sam, anytime. Yes, you do. All right. Thanks again to Jessica Huseman, reporter at ProPublica, covering voting rights and election administration, and Ashley Lopez, reporter at NPR Member State. KUT in Austin covering politics and healthcare. Y'all have a rough few weeks yeah. in front of you. Godspeed. Ooh. I wish you both the best. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, advice columnist John Paul Brammer shares some tips on how to deal with everything. This message comes from NPR sponsor Allbirds, who makes shoes, socks, and undies that are not only comfy, but also carbon neutral. Their average carbon footprint per product is equal to running five dryer loads or driving 19 miles in a car before it's offset to zero. They measure these things because you can't reduce until you know what you produce. With Allbirds, feel confident knowing you're wearing a product that's doing right by your feet and the planet. Learn more about their sustainable practices and find your pair at allbirds.com today. I'm Rodney Carmichael, and on this episode of Louder Than a Riot, did bias against rap lyrics seal the fate of No Limits Mac Phipps? This guy shouldn't be incarcerated, and I know that his music got him incarcerated, but they got the wrong guy. Listen now to the Louder Than a Riot podcast from NPR Music. 
So because of the pandemic, usually these days, my first question to every guest I interview on this show, it's a simple one. How you holding up? How you doing? My next guest had a good answer to that question. He is actually doing better than most. I'm such a recluse. <laughs> Quite literally, my entire life has been preparing for this very moment. Wow. That is John Paul Brammer. He's a writer, an artist. And after he told me that he's fine, I told him that, well, I told him that I now talk to inanimate objects in my home. I just talk to, like, the AC unit. I say it's too loud sometimes. Oh, get a bag of big googly eyes and just start... <laughs> like animating things, like put googly eyes on them. It'll make you feel that much saner. That's happening. There's I guess advice. you just answered an advice question for me because that's like what you do. This is we're doing Ola Poppy right here, right now. Ola Poppy is John Paul's advice column, and that name Ola Poppy, it's a pickup line John Paul has heard a lot, as he's Mexican and gay and on gay dating apps. But I was like, okay, what if I? took this funny little phrase and subverted it in a way so that instead of it being this sort of like, you know, sexual race fetishist type thing, I find some empowerment in it and I call my own column Hola Papi. It's kind of perfect then that Grinder, a gay dating app, it was the first home for John Paul's column. Hola Papi was first published in the now defunct Into, Grinder's digital magazine. Even though John Paul is self-publishing now, he says that first audience... It totally shaped what Ola Papi would become. Because the app is the way it is, I, most of the questions centered on loneliness. So it was this idea of oh. like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I find a man? Um, you know, I can't find a guy to be with. Why don't people like me? You know, it's like things I can't answer. <laughs> things yep. I can't just be like, you know. You need I, a new profile picture. Exactly, That's the advice. Right? Like, what if my whole thing, what if in retrospect I had gone that route and just been like, let me fix you, like a Tabitha takes over for your grinder profile thing. Like, okay, oh we're going to give you a new profile picture. We're going to make over your outfit. This is Queer Eye for the Grid. Um, that would have been funny. I think that's a viable option you just came up with. I it's hope that the late. next iteration of <laughs> Ola Poppy follows Listen, a similar route. Copyright patent um, pending. Give me your producer credit and I'm in. <laughs> so now your uh, column, Ola Poppy, you're self-publishing. Mm -hmm. It's an audience that is wider perhaps than, you know, guys on Grindr. Mm -hmm. How have the questions you get changed yeah. um are you hearing from more straight people are you hearing more generic kind of advice questions i am hearing from more straight people which i really enjoy because i really think that the queer angle comes from me not necessarily the person writing in the letter i think that even if you're a straight person writing a letter to me it's going to end up a sort of lgbt product because yeah. i'm the one you know writing the answer yeah. but also I'm really lucky in that most of the letters these days focus on sort of like esoteric identity type things. So within hmm. the LGBT community, there's a whole lot of people who just don't feel comfortable in who they are. And they're trying to sort of check to see like, am I queer enough? Am I gay enough? Am hmm. I bi enough? Do I belong in this community at all? I'm trying to figure out like, how do I articulate the geometry of what's going on in my soul. I don't know how to do it. That's where I really thrive, I think. And I'm very lucky to run an LGBT advice column in that way because those are things we deal with every single day. Yeah, you know, hearing you talk about the who am I stuff, I've been grappling with this a lot myself recently and I don't know how to resolve it. Uh, for years, since I was out of the closet, I just called myself gay. Mm -hmm. 
And now people are telling me that I need to use the word queer. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't know. I like gay. I don't think I'm exciting <laughs> enough to be queer. Right. What should I do? Help me understand, <laughs> sir. Please. I would love to. Um, so I, what's really interesting to me is that these are all linguistic things and language is such mm. a flawed structure. It's such a mm. flawed tool. So language, in my opinion, will fail you over and over and over again. And I see this a lot, too, in terms of like the Latino versus Latinx debate. All these words mm. are trying to encompass experiences under an umbrella and experiences and individual you know, points of view are inherently unruly. You can't group them all together because they're not the same mm. thing. So when I encounter problems, which I do a lot in like queer versus gay versus LGBT, LGBTQ, LGBTQ+, I don't see proposals for like a concrete, this is now what we're going to say, as some people like to sort of formulate it. I see it more as imperfect humans struggling within an imperfect system to come up mm. with language that suits the most people the best way. So when I think of it that way, I, I'm, I'm, it's easier for me to make peace with it. Yeah, yeah. What's been the biggest shift in the type of questions you get since the pandemic has hit? Oh my gosh. So I really do think that being stuck at home has a different sort of impact for LGBT people because, you know, for a lot of us, our world is out there, not in here. I think that mm -hmm. when you look at a lot of our culture and, you know, the art that gets made involving LGBT people, a lot of it involves travel, a lot of it involves going somewhere else. We're so used mm -hmm. to being on the move because that's where our true selves are. So you start out as mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, being told you're straight, being told you're a cis or whatever. And then, you know, as you get older and you discover yourself, you think, I want to go find where my people are. I want to be around people who understand me. I want to go out into the world and find myself. And so for a lot of people being stuck at home, sometimes with family members where, you know, they kind of have to mm -hmm. be, act out their old selves, it adds another layer of stress, I think. And a lot of my letters reflect that. I read a lot of advice columnists, and I find that there's usually with columnists, there's like an underlying theme to all of their responses. Mm -hmm. Like there's some advice columnists where everything they're really saying and an answer to every question is always some version of just communicate more. Right. Or mm -hmm. some are always really saying trust your gut or like just be honest. Like what is the underlying theme if there is one? And all of your responses. <laughs> I have a weird answer for this. Um, I think a lot okay. of my a lot of my columns end up in this existential place where it's sort of like we're all going to die. Nothing really matters. You get to make of your life what you want to make it. I return to a lot of this sort of like um, radical acceptance of the things you can't control, but also sort of realizing what you can control. Um, things mm. happen to us. A lot of them are bad. A lot of them are traumatizing. Mm. But the stories we make out of that material, that part is up to us. And I think it rhymes a lot with the LGBT experience because, you know, we don't fully understand who we are, what we are. We are kind of set adrift in the world with, that wasn't made for us. And we have to sort of make our own thing. Mm. And I always, I've always found that very beautiful. And I try to reference it a lot in my columns. Thanks again to John Paul Brammer. His advice column is Ola Papi. You can find that column at Ola Papi, that's H-O-L-A-P-A-P-I, dot substack, dot com. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, 
listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, Sam. This is Liz from Irvine, California. And the best thing that happened to me this week is that my son's daycare reopened um, and I got to drop him off and come back home and sit in silence on the couch for five minutes. It's been tough uh, trying to finish my PhD. You hear him in the background there. Say hi. No. And have little child care and no family nearby for the past few months. And now I get to enjoy him even more than usual on the weekend. I just found out that I got hired (laughs) for my first full-time salaried position in my field. My wife, Caitlin, handed in her PhD dissertation. (laughs) I'm getting choked up just saying it. Um, I'm just so proud. The best thing that happened to me this week is officially becoming a board-certified neonatologist. Hey, Sam. It's Erica in Philadelphia. Uh, The best part of my week has been enjoying time with my little family under the sukkah that we built for the Jewish holiday of Sukkot, Um, eating out there under the stars with my little kids, and just enjoying being together outside. This week, I watched my daughter marry her soulmate on top of a mountain. One of the moments, among many wonderful moments, was that park visitors put up a cheer across the valley after they finished their vows. It was just so heartwarming to know that there is this thread of hope and aspiration in the American people that just cannot be broken by a pandemic or anything else. That made my week. I hope you're doing well. So thank you to you for everything you do. Thanks for the show, bye. Thanks to all those listeners you heard there. Liz, Zoe, Joe, Anna, Erica, and Miriam. A lot of smart folks in that bunch this week. What, two PhDs and a neonatologist? Wow. I also really love what Miriam said, that there is a thread of hope and aspiration that cannot be broken by a pandemic or anything else. So, so true. Listeners, keep sharing the best parts of your week with us here on the show. You can do so at any point throughout any week. Just record the sound of your voice on your phone and then send that file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right. This week, the show was produced by Anjali Sastry, Andrea Gutierrez, and Janae West. Janae was out on vacation all week. I hope it was great, Janae. Our intern is Star McCowan. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hokeman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. All right, till next time, have a great weekend. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there. We'll talk soon.